it is the two things that we always try wow. to do in the OCB, constant process improvement and listening to the voice of the customer. And those are the two things that we try to do. Is bodybuilding about selfies, steroids, magazines, and muscles? How do I become a successful pro bodybuilder or fitness competitor? Where do I even start if I'm new? And the biggest question of all, what are the judges looking for anyway? Even today with the internet, many people first discover bodybuilding by word of mouth. The lack of regulation has caused a boom of unqualified coaches, scattered info, biased advice, dangerous protocols, and posing trends that are a hot mess. After 20 years in the business, I have seen it all. Week after week, I'm going to talk about taboo topics that get swept under the rug, provide you tips and strategies to gain a competitive edge and stand out on stage in any division or federation. I'm going to answer all the burning industry questions without the bias. I have competed across six federations, earned pro status in three, and judged in two. I've coached posing and choreography for men and women in all federations and divisions. I know just how much competing means to you. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome, and you are listening to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. Be sure to download your free guide, Five Things Every Bodybuilder and Fitness Competitor Needs to Know Before Your Next Show at eeinbb.com. That's www.eeinbb.com. Welcome back to the Everything Else in Bodybuilding podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Welcome. I'm really excited about this new series that I'm doing. It's called Meet the Federations. And my goal is for you to learn firsthand all of the different options there are in the sport of bodybuilding by highlighting people in the different federations that know each of them the very best. And today we're talking all about the OCB. And my guest today has been affiliated with the OCB Federation since its inception 20 years ago. And for those of you who are a part of the OCB, you might know him as a very kind, very humble non-assuming person that is passionate about natural bodybuilding. But what you might not know is that he spent 25 years in the police department. He was a co-commander of a SWAT team. I'm going to keep going here. (laughs) He has served in three branches of the military, from the Marines, from the Army. He was an officer. He flew a helicopter, which I'm jealous. You were in the Air Force for 12 years, and you currently hold the title of Command uh, Chief Master Sergeant. You're also currently the State Command Chief for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And from a bodybuilding career standpoint, you've competed in 150 shows, which began in the late 70s, by the way. And you are an OCB pro. You head judge and promote shows for the Federation. And I believe you're also an owner. We'll kind of dive into that as well. So I'm really excited. Sean Sullivan, also known as Sully for short. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. And please do take a moment, share a little bit about your background as if I didn't, as if there wasn't enough that I shared. There's <laughs> there's always just so much more to learn about you. I'm I'm super excited to have you here. So please do choose, uh, tell us why you chose to compete and promote with the OCB Federation too. Uh, sure. Uh, just a little bit more about myself. Uh, I have a beautiful wife, Susan, uh, who puts up with all that uh, all that traveling around that I have to do with all that stuff you just said. Uh, I have two wonderful daughters, uh, Kayla and Sarah. I have a grandson, uh, Jack, and I have two stepsons, uh, Giuseppe and Domenico. 
so uh, that kind of rounds everything out. Uh, I also have the greatest job in the world being the state command chief of the Air National Guard, Massachusetts, uh, surrounded by uh, the greatest bunch of, of heroes you'll ever meet. Uh, every single one of them has an outstanding story. It's just the best men and women that I've ever had the opportunity to be around. And when I retire in a couple of years, uh, that is what I'm going to miss. Not the ranks, not titles, uh, not jobs, awards, none of that stuff. Uh, what I'm going to miss the most is being around some of the finest individuals that I've ever had the opportunity to be around. Uh, I do this for them. It's uh, my my. My position is that uh, I do work for the adjutant general and for the air component commander, a couple of generals, but I really work for the uh, 2,000 airmen that we have in the Massachusetts Air National Guard. That's my job. That's the best job I ever had. Uh, as for the OCB, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I got into it uh, from day one. Um, the founder of the OCB, Matt Shepley, had a message board and... Back in those days, it was one of those things, you know, you type it in, it takes five minutes to upload. And, you know, then, you know, somebody answers below it and, you know, you get a little bell that rings a couple of days later and bang, you know, it's just like, you know, slow message traffic kind of, kind of like, you know, like slow mail of the computer age. And I just enjoyed conversing with Matt. Uh, he really had a great vision about what the sport should be. And the cool thing about it uh, was the OCB was just kind of like an open dialogue. We had it, what we Matt hadn't started a federation then. It was just a bunch of like-minded individuals that just got together and we just hung out and, you know, we shared the fellowship of the iron and steel and uh, just became like a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Uh, I started traveling around and uh, people would ask me to do seminars. I guess uh, they kind of thought that I I, uh, I had some interesting things to say on the topic of weight training, et cetera. And uh, when Matt decided he wanted to promote uh, I decided I was going to uh, start promoting too, and uh, decided that just because of, of our relationship and just the fellowship that we had built up on that website, that OCB uh, message board, that if I was going to promote, even though I competed virtually in every federation at the time, you think it's an alphabet soup now, there's always been 20 natural federations. I think, you know, since, since day one, I think, you know, God just woke up one day and said, you know what, uh, I'm just going to, you know, there'll always have to be 20. I think I competed in all of them, as well as the untested federations. And I just decided to uh, stay loyal to uh, that, that group of friendship uh, that I had uh, had formed and have been with the OCB ever since. So no, that's kind of it along the way. Obviously, I, yeah, and you're fiercely loyal. I see that. But what's, what's awesome, I really love your story from your youth where of the story about how you actually were introduced to bodybuilding. How did you find bodybuilding? And that was really interesting to me because it actually wasn't natural bodybuilding. You were actually uh, somebody, you had a rough time growing up. You had a tough upbringing and you had a moment where you were, it was, I don't know if you were expelled or just suspended from school for a day. You're walking home from school, but there is nowhere to go. You don't have a home at this point. And so you're walking, you're walking somewhere and you just buy your and you start walking by this nutrition where there's a presentation with a few very muscular individuals that kind of look like comic books that you enjoyed looking at growing up. And you just kind of stumble. I mean, talk about you can't fake fate. Talk about that moment where you're you walking by and you see these incredible people. And little did you know, I'm gonna let you spill the beans on who you actually <laughs> ran into. Okay, I'll let you tell the story and how you ended up at the Olympia. 
There are there are moments in time that everybody has uh, over their life. Uh, these surreal moments that that happen uh, that you never forget that you can just reflect back upon like they were yesterday, and and that's one of them. Uh, it was a late fall day, and uh, I had been suspended for three days. It wasn't one; it was three days. And uh, <laughs> one thing I do want to, um, and, and I've had a lot of people uh, since I started doing my podcast, and I I kind of people who are close to me kind of knew about my upbringing. I don't talk about it a lot. I just like to put, you know, I just put it out there uh, when I was doing uh, my, my Zen podcast so that people understood that you can come from, you're not bound by your circumstance. Just because you were uh, born in a certain station in life where you didn't have um, all the luck of the draw that some people have, that you create your own luck, that you create your own life. And that's why I put it out there. But uh, people have come up to me and asked me about uh, you know, wanting to get more in-depth on that aspect of my past. And I just don't want to do it. Um, it. It's personal. But I do need to say that although we had our ups and downs, I had the greatest mother in the world. Um, I was stood up for my sophomore prom. And my mom took me out to dinner. Didn't, she was not my prom date. I didn't take my mom to the prom. Okay, we'll get that out of the way right now. Um, but uh, she took me out to dinner uh, that night. Um, we dressed up. Um, she, you know, she made me feel special. She just had a disease. And anybody who suffers with somebody that has alcoholism or any kind of an addiction realizes that, that it is a disease. So it wasn't all bad. Um, but we were going through a particularly bad time. And our uh, our home at the time was a uh, orange VW bus, which I thought was the greatest home you could ever have in the world. You take the seats out and you get a little place to stay. You know, you get back in between an alley. You got the YMCA right next door to take a shower. You got uh, Dunkin' Donuts. And I was at that age where uh, I must have been a, a halfway good looking kid, but uh, I had the pretty blue eyes. And I just sit there on the counter and I kind of look up and I blink my eyes a few times and the girls would go, oh. It's John again, and they give me an ice cream cone. So it was great. I just want to talk that you know, <laughs> even in the worst of circumstances, you can make the best of circumstances. Uh, but uh, I was uh, walking down uh, downtown Columbus, and I just saw um, there was a commotion going on in what I at the time, at the time I didn't even realize what a health food store was or a vitamin store. Um, it it was a store that sold vitamins. They had weights and benches and stuff like that. They had a seminar going on in there with some of the champions of the day. And uh, I just poked my head in there and just watched the seminar. Uh, some of the bodybuilders of the day were talking about uh, different things, you know, muscles and different things. And they were just, these specimens were just incredible. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting right there and, you know, you, you, you know it, it's virtually like being there with, you know, Thor and Captain America and Spider-Man, you know, all these muscular superheroes you read about and they're all right there. Uh, and, uh, just to make a, a long story short, the guy that was running the seminar just happened to be none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. And as the seminar was going on, he was wrapping up the questions and answers things. I realized that even though he never took his shirt off, it was after his competitive days and he was just promoting uh, the Mr. Olympia at the time. Uh, you could tell who the leader was. You could tell who who brought it all together. You could tell who, you know, the cult, the personality, the force, whatever you want to call it. You, you could tell who, you know, the person was that when uh, when when they spoke, you could hear a pin drop, and it was just that kind of confidence that just drew me in. It wasn't so much the muscles; it was it was the confidence. It was 
the ability to to articulate to an audience uh, your your innermost thoughts, to be able to you know disseminate this information uh, and be giving people something of value. You could tell, like whenever Arnold was speaking, he was presenting something that was very valuable to this core of people, and. It was just kind of that part I found to be mesmerizing. The bodybuilding was kind of secondary at that juncture. Uh, he called over to this guy named Jim and uh, hooked me up with a couple of tickets to a competition that was called the Mr. Olympia. And I had, I had no idea. I just figured it was, you know, just a bunch of guys from Columbus getting together and putting a show on. <laughs> How was I supposed to know? Uh, ran back to uh, the house on wheels and uh, I, uh, my mom could tell how excited I was about it. And it was the first time I think that she saw me really get excited about something. I was 13 and it was the first time she really saw me get excited about anything uh, since um, as long as she could remember. You know, all I used to do was is uh, draw on uh, paper plates. And that was it. That was like my out. Uh, and she just saw how much excitement I had. Uh, and she stayed sober. She didn't drink the next day. And we went and got to hang out with uh, some of the people. They had, uh, Back in those days, they used to have like after-party meet and greets, you know, like uh, like a buffet dinner thing uh, that was a different tier of the ticket. I had no idea that that was a tier of a ticket. I, I, I didn't realize that, you know, at the time, the opportunity that I was given. But wow. I think that- Wait, so just, mom went with you. I didn't catch Oh, mom that went part. with me. She was my oh, date. Oh, that's huge. She was wow. my date. Uh, my mom managed to make it to two bodybuilding competitions her entire life. Uh, the first one I ever competed in, and that one. And uh, so uh, I guess I was blessed with with those two uh, two moments that you always remember. Uh, but after that's that, wonderful. I just started- And then you're at the meet and greet with mom. And yep. she have, and you're talking to these, which are, we could call them legends now talking to my cats yeah, or talking um, to I was talking to my cats he didn't compete that night uh he was there um he had competed I think the year before a couple of years before that and he was doing some other things but you know he yeah you know, he was just like ginormous he was just you could just tell uh you know looking right through his clothing that that the man was immense uh we had a great conversation uh, I found out that he was a school teacher and that he lived in Connecticut and my mom was born in Connecticut. So, of course, that led to some conversations between the three of us. And, um, you know, he started talking a little bit about his, you know, his background, how he got into the sport. And I didn't talk much. I was just sitting there going, yeah, I'm a punching bag. Yeah, I'm the fat kid to school. Yeah, my grades suck. Yeah, I'm just like nodding. And then he went on to talk about how he eventually became a Mr. American and Mr. Universe. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. But you know what? You, you, you know, you have a family now. You're established. Um, you are just articulate. You are, um, just, you could just tell he was just another leader in the community that he was a leader of people. And I would, that inspired me. And, uh, my mom asked me wanted to do after that. And I said, I, I need to join a gym. So, uh, there was the YMCA right down from, uh, we were where we were at in quotations at the time. And so I started working out at the Columbus YMCA, which was actually a really good gym. It was a really good place to train back in the day. And uh, the bug bit me from there. Uh, you know, about a year later, we moved to Massachusetts. And uh, <laughs> 1980, yeah, 1980, we moved to Massachusetts. And it was right around the time Conan came out and Arnold Schwarzenegger started to become this, you know, this big star. Uh, about, a year, about a year later, uh, is when that happened. And uh, as I'm getting a little bit older, uh, I 
find out that Arnold Schwarzenegger keeps coming to Cape Cod, which is where we moved. And I was working at a grocery store called Angelo's and I was a bagging groceries. Now I'm, I'm, you know, 16. Now at this, I just turned 16 and I'm, I'm bagging these groceries. And all of a sudden I see Arnold come through the, you know, the, the 12 item or less line with this uh, pretty, pretty, pretty girl, you know, long, dark hair, turned out to be Maria Shriver. And I don't even know the Kennedys. I'm living in Massachusetts. I don't even know who these people are. And so I went over and I bagged his groceries and I asked if I could carry him out to his car. And I remember he's like, you know, look at me, he goes, I can carry the bag to my car. You know, he's got these big freaking ginormous arms. He's getting ready to do Conan. And I'm like, no, Mr. Schwarzenegger, it'd be my honor to carry it out. He was like, oh, so obviously he knew me. And I, he probably didn't remember that moment at all. It was just, you know, just um, a pay it forward moment. And those are things that I always like to uh, try to encourage people to do. Uh, I, I, I just love it when I am in line and the person in front of me says, you know, I want to buy the coffee, you know, here's an extra couple of dollars. I want to buy the coffee for the next person who comes through or giving tickets to a kid to a Mr. Olympia competition that you're not going to remember five minutes after that you did it, but just these spur of the moment things, because you never know how they can change somebody's life. These like little pay it forward moments. Uh, so that's something else I like to, uh, get out to the audience and the people, you know, if you have an opportunity to pay it forward at any time in life, you never know what dividends it's going to pay because some big Austrian bodybuilder, uh, about 40 years ago had a pay it forward moment and it totally changed the stars for this kid's life. So, um, you know, take an opportunity to do that and you don't have to worry about the dividends it pays. You don't even have to know, you know, till the day you die. And you're conversing with God about all the things, you know, that you did right and wrong in your life. It might be at that moment that you realize these little small things created such big ripples in the world. And that's what you're going to be known for, not, you know, these big achievements that you try to create. So, but yeah, that, that's my strength. That is, and that just, that just hits me in the gut when I hear you talk, talk about that. <laughs> and even just how you ask out of respect to carry his groceries. No, really, like you didn't carry his groceries to say, hey, look at me. Do you remember me? You know, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. You just knew in your heart, your gratitude for this person. Knowing, and, and you're seeing him become a star. So you could have been like, can I have your autograph? Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? But no, you didn't. You actually gave back. You gave back to him. I don't think he probably has ever had that happen to him since he's become famous. Where people will probably... When you become famous, people around you, everybody wants something from you and, and you didn't. You genuinely wanted to carry this man's groceries to say thank you because in your heart, you knew your entire life changed. Like that hit me That really does. And there was also one other moment and, and then I want to kind of dive into why you went into the natural bodybuilding route, rather the non-drug tested federations. But before we do, I want to make one more point about this profound moment that you had with Arnold because you asked him how do you get those people again? We're, now we're back in the nutrition store for a second. So let me just dive <laughs> yeah. back to that moment. And you asked him, you said, how did you get all these people to love you? And when his response was so human, his response was, go ahead, I'll let you say it. Uh, his response was to call over the, the, the whole crux, crux of the moment. And this is what I mean by pay it forward moments is that he saw, he, he could tell just by looking at me that here's a moment where there's somebody struggling. There's somebody that has not found themselves. They haven't found their, their inner person. Uh, they're, they're kind of like a little bit lost in life. And by calling Jim over and just giving this kid two tickets 
to a bodybuilding competition, I think he realized that that could be the, you know, the spark or the crux or the, the, the moment, so to speak. Uh, and it, it was actually when we were there at the after event, it was actually Arnold who had mentioned Mike Katz to me. So it was almost like in his head, in that moment, the synopsis of his brain fire. And he realizes that, Hmm, I don't know anything about this kid, but I can tell by his appearance and, and the question that he asked and, you know, what he keyed in on where he needs to be and who he needs to talk to. Uh, my mom, uh, at the time being more of a cynic thought he was just trying to blow us off. Um, I, I take it in a different way. I, I realized that at the time he was, you know, he was circulating the room and, you know, we came up to him to thank him. And he realized that that moment, the person, the person I needed I to talk to was Mike Katz. So uh, it, it is kind of just like that whole, that whole circle of the event uh, that brought it around. Uh, and that Didn't is he why say to you, didn't he say to you that to get all these people to love you, you got to start by loving yourself. Yes. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That's exactly. So this is this famous person, somebody who well known, I mean, from pumping iron, just how driven and just how, I mean, unbelievably driven this person is, but wow, that was very human. And for him to, and very smart and savvy, like he's obviously understands people and that he wouldn't be in the position he's in if he did it, where he understood this is Mike Katz as a teenager. I need this teenager to talk to Mike Katz. So, cause he's going to, you're going to relate to Mike Katz because it's, your, it's part of your, a lot of that story is similar to what you could relate to. And because of that, you had an epiphany. And that's when you, after that, you got your gym membership, correct? I did. And uh, when we moved to uh, to the Cape, I, I did end up running into Arnold uh, frequently after that, uh, because at the time there was only really one gym on all of Cape Cod. And uh, at the time he would train there. So I'd run into him there. Uh, I'd see him from time to time. I never really I never wanted to be a nudge or nag to him. We would just, you know, you know, I'd be getting an ice cream and then he'd be there getting his rum raisin ice cream. I still remember the ice cream that he would order. You know, I'm, I was cookie dough. Well, actually, there was no cookie dough back then. It was the um, chocolate chip, uh, vanilla chocolate chip. But uh, but um, it, it was just like this repetitive cycle. But and then I saw him a couple of times. And I went to the Arnold Schwarzenegger Classic, but I saw that. That change that Arnold had to go through as his persona became bigger than life. And I know that Arnold has had a charmed life, but I bet you, if you were to ask the man, what were the best times of his life? He would say when he was at the height of his competition time to when he was just starting out as a movie star, because he was able to have those moments because I bet I'm not the only unique person out there that, that Arnold had that opportunity to, to touch. I mean, people see him in pumping iron. It was, it was literally <clears throat> I knew there was a movie called Pumping Iron, a book called Pumping Iron after I had met him. And it was literally years later that I saw Pumping Iron. And I remember watching Pumping Iron. I'm going, this dude's kind of a dink. 
this is not the guy I met, <laughs> you know, because he's kind of coming off like egotistical and he's, you know, psyching out Lou and all this other stuff. And we find out like, you know, decades later that they kind of set the movie up that way and, you know, and, and, and whatever he was trying to play a persona. But uh, again, just getting back to uh, people and, and how they can change. I bet that the best times of his life were, were there because when I got to see him in the late nineties and then early two thousands going to the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, he just had this entourage and he couldn't go anywhere and he couldn't really mm-hmm. connect. And you said it best at that point in your life, you don't know who your friends are because it just gets to that point where, you know, you know, you're, you know, you're this surreal being to them and they want to be in your gravitational pull because it helps them in one way or another. And uh, I just, you know, when I think of Arnold, I just remember there's that guy that could walk into an ice cream store in Osterville, Massachusetts. Uh, Main Street, Osterville is where he used to get his ice cream. <laughs> you know, it's funny how you remember these things. Uh, and not that we'd stake him out there, but like I said, the only gym that they had in Massachusetts was down the street from the ice cream store in Osterville. It was this place called Dumpy's. It was actually in a hotel <laughs> until he uh, then then he eventually ended up as as his his legend grew. Uh, the police department in uh, in Barnstable, Massachusetts, he actually bought them their gym. He he helped invest and they got a, a really great gym in there. And then they they did, you know, all kinds of, uh, um, you know, equipment drives and stuff like that. Uh, I was not a cop then. I was not there at the time. I just remember hearing these stories because you never saw him after that other than in town. And the word was always that he bought the, the gym at the police department. And he works on the police department because that way people don't bother him when he works out, you know, just a bunch of cops. So, uh and then you ended up being a cop, so it's kind of. I did, funny yeah. I, that, it, a had nothing to do with B. I became a cop. To, I became a cop totally by accident. <laughs> yeah, act, totally by accident. I I believe you. I believe you. It's just the synchronicity. There's obviously something tandem that's it's very unique uh, that you've had with him, and I can understand that. I'm here in Las Vegas right now. We've been promoting the show. We've actually driven f- over fifteen thousand miles promoting this podcast. Everything else in bodybuilding. Oh. We're living in a van, so I can relate to the whole like wheel on wheels type of thing, and you know. In Las Vegas. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a minivan. So, and I can understand that and appreciate because there's, I would say this is like the fitness mecca of the world. If I was going to be so bold, I understand Gold's Gym and Venice is the mecca, but I'm saying like a fitness mecca because there's just such an overabundance of uh, fitness facilities here and they're all packed, like pack packed. So we go to one mm-hmm. where you spend a little bit more, but you get more less members so it's a little bit more exclusive and we just so happen to people like a cutler people like carrot top so here i am sitting and trying to get some stuff on my computer done and i see them walk by and it's funny in my head i'm thinking they probably don't get a they probably don't get a break the last thing you know i i just kind of said hello and then went back to my computer because i don't want to feel like in that space where they're trying to just have a moment that to be bombarded by others that are just like me, 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 tell me, and let me get my autograph and all that stuff. So I can completely relate to that sensitivity to somebody else's space. And, and I really like how you, you just, just remained so unassuming and just allowed him to be inspirational to you. But it, it also didn't define you. Like you didn't end up going and getting all like, you know, 300 pounds of muscle and going on the Olympia stage. You actually didn't, you are now in a natural bodybuilding federation, meaning you've been there for 20 years. You promote, do you own part of OCB? I do. Okay. So there is an ownership there. I mean, that's, that's huge. So you have 
gone your journey for the last since the 1970s when you 1979 I believe is when you first started competing so all these years and you didn't go like you did compete in the non-tested federations I think you said you competed in all of them but it wasn't where you stayed it wasn't where you rah rah you know I met Arnold so I want to be like Arnold I want to be like Mike Katz I want to be like these guys you wanted to be you and you found your own journey and how did it go from being inspired by Arnold to I'm going to stay in this natural federation and I'm not going to go into the non-drug tested federations and promote there. Um, I, I had to be in my twenties before I even realized that steroids were a thing. Um, it, and I learned about steroids when I was a Marine because a lot of the Marines were going over into Mexico to get steroids so that we, you know, they, well, they've, that we, I, I never partook of anything, but they were taking them not for cosmetic purposes. They were taking things for uh, field purposes so that they could be bigger, stronger, faster, um, you know, better Marines. Uh, and not, not, not a lot of them, just a few that I ran into. So it's not, I don't want to uh, color it as, you know, there was some kind of an epidemic problem. There were one or two guys that I would talk to about it. And they would tell me, oh, yeah, you know, it's not just us. You know, the baseball players are using and football players, a lot of bodybuilders. And I'm like, bodybuilders. And it started dawning on me that, yeah, you know what? It would make sense. Uh, and it's not that I didn't 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 kind of see things. It's kind of like, you know, you look back afterwards and you kind of go, oh, yeah, that would make sense. That was the the pills I saw that were in somebody's gym bag, or that's why somebody had a syringe. And that's why, you know, you start making these connections, you know, in your, your snaps, but um, it really wasn't something that I really fully understood and comprehended uh, at the level I was competing at, you know, there'd always be one or two really ginormous people. And I just go, Hey, wow, they're genetically gifted. And, you know, the rest of us were just like all these also rands. And now I realized the also rands were the ones who didn't figure out that, you know, steroids made a difference. Uh, at the time. And there was a, um, a moment where there was, um, I'm trying to remember, uh, it was Robert Kennedy's magazine. He was a publisher back in the day. And uh, the annual 80 or 79 or 80 or something like that, it was an annual uh, that had all the information from the year in it. And it was talking about this guy, Chet Yorton, who just had the first natural Mr. American. I went, oh, and I'm reading it and I'm like, Chet Yorton, that's the guy I know from the movies because I used to watch movies. I was um, obsessed with Annette Funicello. So I'd watch all the, you know, all the, the beach movies and there was Muscle Beach Party and Chet Yorton was in that. And then he was in another movie, Don't Make Waves with Tony Curtis. And I saw that. And I remember this guy, Chet Yorton, this big muscular guy who was an actor. And then he was also, I remembered from learning a little bit about Arnold, a guy who beat Arnold in a bodybuilding competition. And I just started putting everything together like, oh, my God, this guy who doesn't take, take steroids beat Arnold in a competition. And now he has drug tested competitions. Where can I learn more about this? And there weren't a lot of them. Uh, I believe Chet's shows were uh, he was living in Vegas at the time, of all things. And his shows were in Vegas. So I started looking around for drug tested shows. And there really wasn't anything I could find. Until around uh, 83, 84, uh, there would some federations would pop up and they would be drug tested all natural. Uh, and I didn't get to do my first one until uh, 1988. It was, I was out of the Marine Corps and I was back in Massachusetts. And it was 88 and it was the ANBC and they had a competition uh, in Massachusetts, uh, the Berkshire Classic. 
And I went and I competed in that. That was my first natural drug tested event. And it was polygraph tested. And I'm like, I was scared because all I had remembered was reading the articles about Chet Yorton's show and it was blood tested. And I got this thing for needles. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not afraid of them. I just like, you know, when we have to line up to have blood draws or shots in the military, I'm like the guy at the end of the line, you know, I try to play it off. Like I'm encouraging everybody. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. But inside I'm sweating. Yeah. I, I you know, <laughs> when I found out it's this polygraph thing, I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, this is even more, you know, mind blowing. And then we find out afterwards that, you know, the promoter comes over and said, yeah, two people didn't pass the polygraph. I'm like, that's a thing God, now, you know, it, it just seemed like so legit to me, you know, it's just a drug tested bodybuilding show. This is great. Uh, and then after that, I started to look for predominantly drug tested shows, but uh, the AAU was very big at the time. Uh, the NABA was big at the time and they weren't drug testing. Uh, A and B, C, uh, a lot of other uh, natural federations at the time, uh, a lot of three and four letter uh, words that, you know, you know uh, almost all of them had natural somewhere in the title. And so I just bounced around the circuit. And because I enjoyed competing, I mean, it wasn't unusual for me to do four or five shows in the spring and four or five shows in the fall. Uh, over wow. about a about a 10, 15 year period. Um, if I would have success and I would win a show, I'd never go back and win a show twice. I would just move on to other shows. And uh, I just uh, really enjoyed it. It, it. What I liked about it is um, the fellowship that we had backstage, you know, making friends mm -hmm. and talking things over uh, talking about training and diet. And then I, I would usually try to put big groups of people together to go out and eat after. I mean, this is this was before after parties were a thing, uh, you know, uh, and then we'd all get together because I didn't want the moment to end. You know, you have that moment and you're on stage for what, eight, 10 minutes of a prejudging and then 30 yeah, seconds for a routine short. Yeah. You know, and then a minute for a stage, you know, where you go out for, a, for an award and that's it. Well, that's not the fun part. You know, the, the fun part's hanging out and making friends and, you know, calling people up and going out to dinner and, you know, going around and doing, uh, I would go on um, uh, gym vacations. Uh, and my, my daughter Kayla was the victim of a lot of these where it would be like, you know, it was just this like little girl. I remember we trick or treated one Halloween uh, because we were on a gym vacation and doing competitions. We trick or treated in. <laughs> In like a, a big mall area. And then all the people that lived in the area that knew us from competing, you know, she was in her costume. We're driving from house to house to house. And here I am all orange getting ready to compete the next day. And I'm taking her around for Halloween. She's having the time oh of her life. And I thought I was, you know, you know, ruining her childhood, but we get together. We talk now. She's like, these are the best days of my life. You were always there. You were always engaged. We did everything together. Uh, you didn't forget about me. It wasn't about you, but we got to go hang out in all these places, you know, and you know, that was stuff that we do. We'd turn around and, and go, hey, you know, let's go visit uh, Big Ock in wherever and, you know, go hang out with him for a few days and his family and go work out. And it was just all those moments that I built up. And that's why bodybuilding became so important to me. And when I would compete in some of the non-drug tested federations, it just had a different vibe. It was just, it had a total different feeling. You know, like I try to go interact with somebody and make friends and I'd get treated like a pariah and, you know, or, 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 you know, or just, it was just like a different vibe. And I'd sit there and I think to myself, you know, I'm a SWAT sniper. I'm a United States Marine. I'm a stone cold freaking killer. But when I am in this environment, I want to hang out and understand humanity because I see a lack of it in my job. So when I have to come here 
And I have to put a game face on that I would have when I was either on the street, you know, or in uniform or on a deployment. I don't like that. I like to be around bodybuilders where I can put my my smiley face on, my happy face, my, you know, we we are a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And this is not a competition. It's a festival of muscle and beauty. And we're not glad it's not gladiatorial combat. And the reality of the situation is other than you, not a single person in the world that's going to remember five years from now what you won or who won that show or if that show even exists or what federation it is. Nobody knows. Nobody cares because it's 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 almost an internal self-centered drive that that brings us to the stage, which is not a bad thing. It, it It's about self-improvement. But why do you want to destroy it all by being a putz backstage and treating everybody with disrespect and, you know, making it all about like it's, you know, we're we're you know, getting ready to play the Super Bowl. I mean, it was ridiculous. But I noticed that there was less of that vibe around the natural shows. And that's kind of what kept me in that natural circuit, uh, particularly within the ANBC. Um, I kind of found a home there for a long time. And uh, mm-hmm. really what about enjoyed like the, the, and that makes complete sense. And understanding your why, you weren't intrigued by Arnold's muscles you were intrigued by the confidence. You were intrigued by um, him saying the love yourself first. It was a completely different reason. Your why for competing wasn't, I want to be the hottest guy on stage. I want to be jacked. I want to just feel like I'm super muscular. You had a completely different why. And I'm hearing that why as you're talking, I think the audience is kind of picking all that up too. So I have to ask you when you're, you're dialing in for a bodybuilding competition. I mean, I think I've had many people on the show. We talk about how just not lean enough. A lot of people getting up prepared for their shows. There, there is a love conditioning that you have to bring yourself to. Especially, you're a pro bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Understand that there's a there's fitness, there's looking good on the beach, and then there's bodybuilding. And to get from beach to bodybuilding, there's a process, and there's a lot of time, and it's a lot of internal time camaraderie that you're talking about at the show is very different than the than the journey to the stage so what is it internally that drove you through those moments of of challenge as you're getting your body fat down and down and down and down and down and, and this i've been competing for 20 years i started funny the anbc was my um was my first federation too bodybuilding <laughs> natural bodybuilding so i it's like oh yeah i know what you're talking about so i understand the level of conditioning that it takes to get there and what the what what got you through those moments? What was your why? It wasn't, you know, hey, well, can't Arnold look great? Or, hey, I want to look hot. What was it for you? Uh, continuous self-improvement. Uh, I, I try to do it at all levels, uh, on the intellectual level, on the emotional level, on the spiritual level, and on the physical level. Um, I've always been, been trying to uh, get to that next level of improvement. And when it came to physique, uh, I tried to stay lean. After well, let me let me rephrase that. I went through the bulk up, diet down phases, and boy, I could bulk up. I, I remember times where I was pushing close to you know 230, 240 pounds, and it wasn't bulking. Considering I competed between at my best 158 and 160, uh, no, I just got fat. Uh, and then you it's have the vanilla to chocolate the chip icing. Uh, the vanilla I, I, chocolate I love ice cream. cream. <laughs> ice cream and cookies i've never met a cookie i didn't like is back my my wife's picking cookies for my stepson now and i'm just sitting here going oh, i love a cookie uh but uh 
at a certain point, I managed to, I, I just realized that it, I'm not doing myself any favors. Uh, I'm really gaining nothing from this. So I would stay relatively lean. And I got to a point where I, I realized that, that I did not, and in, 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 I was always doing self-experimentation. So I put it, you know, we'll, we'll start with that. But I realized that I didn't need to do as much to have the same result. And then I started thinking, does everybody do overkill? So uh, let, let me go with this. I, I've never eaten. Uh, I've never eaten. I, I've never um, been one to eat, you know, 5,000 calories a day in order to gain muscle. It didn't work for me. But I've never been somebody that would diet on 800 calories a day to get lean. Get lean. That's too extreme, too. It didn't really work for me. I was never somebody that would train six days a week for three hours a day. I found that training three days a week for 40 minutes per, per, per session and adding a fourth day as I got closer to the show and then eliminating it as I got real close to the show because I could never understand the logic of doing more when you're eating less. I, you know, Why are you going to six days a week and two-hour-a-day workouts when your calories at your lowest, nutrition's at your lowest? So I would reverse that back. Uh, my cardio was always running. And it was always running because I was always at the military or a cop or doing something where running was required. And I also remembered that I was at uh, Dunphy's and somebody was talking to Arnold about hip, the Arnold about running and about, oh crap, I, you know, I'm joining the army. I'm going to have to run. It's going to ruin my legs. And Arnold, I'll never forget this said, ah, I have a little secret for you. All the time I compete for Mr. Olympia, I get up at 5 a.m. I run one mile, maybe two on beach three days a week. And I tell everybody, don't run bad for your legs. This is how I get so ripped. And I'm like, oh, you son of a, okay, I get it. More psychological warfare. I get it. So I would run three or four days a week for, you know, two or three miles. And that was my cardio. So when everybody else was doing hours of cardio and training six days a week and going from extreme caloric highs and extreme caloric lows. I just found the minimum amount of whatever I needed to do to get the greatest effect. And then I would experiment and go, okay, well, three days a week is working really good for me. Let me try five days a week. And generally I would get no better gains and I would just feel worse. And I'd have less time to spend uh, with my daughters uh, or, you know, with my friends or doing anything else. So uh, bodybuilding became a minimalist activity for me, you know, scaling back to find what is the bare minimum I need to do to crack this egg. And it didn't become as time consuming. So therefore, it was less mentally draining. I had less of a mental drain because there was less extreme dieting. And uh, I, I, another thing I just love to this day, uh, my, my favorite meals are still, you know, chicken, rice, and vegetables. I just, I, I don't eat a lot of sauces except sweets. We're coming into my Achilles heel time Cookies. of the year where I've been known to put on a lot of weight in the winters, which is uh, why I try to get my PT tests and stuff in. Uh, at the beginning of October. Um, but other than the sweets and the baked goods, uh, it, it was never as mentally grueling for me because I realized that I could, you know, even a week out for a show, I could have a cheat day. I never uh, was a proponent of cutting water or doing all this crazy. I, I remember thinking it just sounds like voodoo when they would talk about, you know, you have to do all this stuff to peak. And I was talking to, to one coach and I, and I worked with a lot of coaches and I would try what they said and I get no better results. And I go back to, you know, some of the minimal, minimalist stuff. And I'd always ask the same thing. Why? Well, you, you, you've got to, you know, you, you've got to take, uh, you know, 299 milligram potassium tablets per day, every day. You have to cut your sodium to zero. You have to drink distilled water and then you have to water load. And then what? And I'd be like, why? It, it, aren't, 
muscles made of water? And just all these questions that nobody asked 20 years ago, I'm asking and nobody can give me an answer. It's just because I'm like, I don't like because it doesn't seem to work for me. I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, so as far you know, long answer to a short question, it was never really that grueling for me because it was just, it was never that extreme. It was never six days a week. Your perspective yeah, was, was never extreme. Even even with everything that you're describing, you're still looking and approaching bodybuilding and your bodybuilding prep in a humble way. You're saying to myself, okay, this is what's working for me. This is this is making me feel a certain way. You're listening to your body. You're humble enough to not be like, well, I just need to add five more days because I'm important. So I need to feel more important. So I need to do two hours a day of this, that, and the other thing. Like you don't have that. So you are able to kind of look at your own reflection and be like, you know what? I think that this is better for me. This works better for me. Listen to your body. That doesn't happen today. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like it's like the wild west when it comes to coaches. And I'm very concerned. The more I'm seeing with the uh, social media in particular, the more I'm seeing the pro card pushing. That is really concerning in particular. I'm seeing the one division I'm seeing it the most is the bikini division. Bad, probably because with bikini, you don't need 10 years of competing to compete. You just need a foundation of muscle. So that could be two years. It could be, you might've been athletic your whole life. So you may actually have a foundation of muscle. So your opportunity could be a lot sooner versus like figure you need more years of training to build that more separation that, that, physique that you're looking for as a figure competitor. So what I'm seeing now that's very concerning is people aren't listening to the body. They just listen to their coach. They like go, they meet with a coach and it like shuts off. It's like, I'm just going to do what coach said. And I'm not going to ask questions. And this coach is, well, I'm going to take you to the Olympia. I'm going to make you a pro. Like that's the pro card pushing up. We got another pro this weekend. We got another, you know, Olympia qualifier. So I'm very concerned about that in the industry itself. And it's refreshing to hear you talk about it. And I really wish that what you're saying would be on blast more about listening to your body and more is not better. More is not going to give you more. And I'm a, I'm in my forties now. I started competing at 20 and the things that I did probably midway through at around 30, um, I would, I look back and I'm like, man, that was brutal. And I couldn't sustain it. It just, it's taxing on the body. It's too much. And then as you get to 40, it's like, there's no freaking way I can recover from that. And then it's really like, okay, well, I just want to train for my longevity and my health. And I want to take a deep breath. And it's like, wow, I'm actually doing okay these days for the last five years, you know, that type of thing. So listening to the body is super important. More is not better. I love this, that you're encouraging this information to you, that you're, sh you're sharing about your drive and your why. And I hope others will take that to heart and really reflect on maybe paying a little bit more attention to what is really working for you. And I love how you said, what's the bare minimum I can do and still crack the egg. That was awesome. Um, I want to ask you, what does natural mean anyways? So the OCB, if you can first off say what the acronym OCB stands for, and then if you could talk a little bit about more what natural, I think a lot of people are confused. And another thing that's happening in, in the industry right now is they're saying, well, I'm natty right now. So there's like this term, this loose term of, well, I'm off my gear. So I'm now natty. And I, and it's like, oh, okay. So there's confusion that I kind of want to, um, give some clarity to. So if you can first off say what the OCB's feder uh, federation, what that acronym stands for, and then really deep dive on what does natural mean to the OCB uh, and to you. Well, for the OCB, uh, first of all, it stands for Organization of Competition Bodies. And um, 
as far as natural, you, you said it yourself. There's, I look at it as two prongs of natural. So uh, there is what the individual considers to be natural. And there are what the Federation guidelines are and what they consider to be natural. And federations differ. And I've used this analogy before, and I kind of like to use it all the time. It's kind of like fast food restaurants. You know, uh, the OCB is Wendy's and the WMBF is Burger King and the AMBF is Taco Bell. And we're all out there and we all have a product. Uh, what's the commonality of it? It's all food, all food. It's all fast food. It all tastes good. But what do you want? Do you want a burrito? Uh, do you want a Whopper? Do you want a filet of fish? Do you go out and you, you get what you want? Uh, so all we worry about in the OCB is, you know, doing the best that we can for put out the best possible product that we can with the most consistency as you know, with based you know, steeped in uh, things being um, fair, repeatable, defendable, and just to the best of our ability. And we don't worry about, you know, what Taco Bell is doing. We don't worry about what Wendy's is doing. We don't worry about what anybody else is doing. It, it, it It's people, people sometimes get upset. And I see a lot of, I don't do a lot of social media following. I go on, I advertise for my show or I'll check in on my airman or I'll put something out. And then I jump off because uh, it can be a little toxic and people come to me all the time and say, Hey, did you hear what they were saying about you? And the only thing I always ask him is, well, why did they feel comfortable saying that about me in front of you? I mean, wh where do you stand in all this as far as, you know, as uh, uh, having my back. So uh, it shows me more when people come to me about them, you know, what my relationship is, than anything else, but uh, what I'm getting at is that we don't turn around and and do anything against anybody or try to one up or whatever to include what we consider natural. And that was kind of like my long way of bringing us to what is our organizational stance uh, for natural for the OCB. Uh, we go with the WADA list. So we go by WADA with a few exclusions. Uh, we do allow DHEA up to 100 milligrams a day. And we will uh, allow something like seven keto, uh, seven keto uh, DHEA. Uh, just, just a few minor tweaks that we've looked at. We've kind of gone. We don't really consider that to be an unfair advantage, even though it is on the WADA list. But predominantly, we go by WADA. Uh, why? Uh, because it is consistently updated. You can go onto their website and punch something in and find out that it was added. You know, seven days ago. If you try to do this on your own, you are going to get a popsicle headache. So. For our organization, natural is adhering to the WADA guidelines, and that also includes no use of TRT unless there's a medical necessity to it. You know, and some federations will allow it, um, you know, if you have a doctor's note, I, that's fine. You know, there you go. That That's your taco, you know, that just like in the fast food restaurant thing, there's nothing, you know, wrong with that. There's nothing different. That's their interpretation of natural, but we will not allow it. Uh, unless there's some medical necessity, somebody had a you know a diseased gland and they don't produce whatever that substance is on their own, whether it's testosterone or thyroid or, or whatever, um, you know that we'll give them a waiver for that. Um, but if it is, you know, my my uh, my doctor diagnosed me with low testosterone and he put me on you know uh, you know testosterone therapy or I'm on the pellet or I'm on this or whatever, that's a quality of life and it just it just our view as an organization is that's an unfair advantage because every bodybuilder, male or female, over the age of 40 that has competed for more than five or 10 years is going to be on the low range of testosterone. Um, but it doesn't take into fat into account, you know, your your different 
like there's three different types of testosterone. You have active, you have binding, you have free, um, you know, it, it doesn't measure the ratio of one to the other. There's, there's a lot of factors there and I'm not going to get uh, technical or medical on it because even I don't fully understand it. I just understand from talking to the professionals that yes, you might be on the low end as somebody who competed for 30 years in bodybuilding, but it's still not low for you because you're still holding on to 160 pounds of muscle. You're still bench pressing 350 pounds. You're still doing all these things and you're still, you know, you're not at 28% body fat. Uh, so that's just a natural part of aging in the bodybuilding world. And that's kind of how we look at it. That's just our stance. Um, and the other uh, aspect of natural, you said your personal stance. Um, I think the organization kind of reflects how, how my personal stance is. Uh, there, we do have an ownership group. I will not speak for everybody on there what, what they personally feel natural is. But I think that, that that gets a good handle on it. Now, I've talked to some competitors who personally feel that that it's not natural to use creatine or it's not natural to use branch chain amino acids or anything. If it's not real regular food that you can get at the, the grocery store, then it's, then you're, you're, it's not natural. Okay. That that's, that's, that's their viewpoint. I absolutely respect it. And I am not going to try to change anybody's viewpoint on that. I think that's the biggest thing that is happening in this country. We cannot, have disagreement without weaponizing it. I mean, everything from, mm-hmm. from, from politics to race, to religion, to you name it. If there's something out there, what yeah. bodybuilding federation that you want to, you know, you want to compete in, everything is getting weaponized and we're using it to attack each other. And I just don't, I don't see it that way. I applaud uh, the, uh, you know, the AMBF or the Mr. America or any of these other federations for their stance on natural and their viewpoint. That's great. I appreciate that. You know, I respect it, appreciate it, and you go. And anybody whose viewpoint is that, you know what, uh, you know, I think as long as, you know, you're off the gear for a year, you're natural. Uh, I think if you've ever been on the gear, you're not. But yeah, we, we go seven years, we go seven years, you know, uh, we go seven years back to kind of give people who made a mistake a break. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's the, the two, uh, you know, the, the two vary. Uh, with user end, but that's the OCB stance. And that's just my personal stance. I think if you've ever used, then you're not truly natural. Uh, and if you're utilizing anything that's on the WADA list for physique augmentation or enhancement purposes, then you're not truly natural. That's just my personal view. And what about women who are going through menopause? I mean, there is a physical change that goes on, be very uncomfortable for women who are, and a lot of their natural paths are giving them bioidentical um, hormones, uh, creams, things like that, just to help them yes. feel better. And is that considered hormone TRT, like uh, testosterone replacement it, it, therapy? So is it hormone replacement therapy? Or so is it blanket in the OCB that you can't do any of it? No, you can, uh, for women in menopause, uh, women who've had hysterectomies or a lot of uh, contributing factors, um, I'll, I'll have them go through the waiver process, but there is a lot of questions I ask along with that. And here's, here's where I'm going with that. Uh, Doctors have done a 180. Uh, about 20 years ago, you could not get a doctor to prescribe you testosterone if your life depended on it. And sometimes it did, and they still would not give it to you. Now the pendulum has swung so far in the other way. All you have to do is walk into a doctor's office and say, hey, I'm feeling a little sluggish. I think you have low testosterone. We're going to give you, you know, hormones and therapies. There are a lot of things that women going through menopause can do to offset that. So that's the first question I ask, you know, have you tried before you go on, get with me, 
and you know uh, talk about the waiver process. And before you just automatically jump on, you know, the pellets or patches or anything else, what have you done to get to that point? Has it worked? Because you are going to get to a point of diminishing returns where nothing is going to work. Everything plummets. You, you know, um, you know, I, I, I feel for women going through menopause because I, wow, it's tough. This is why women are tougher than men. We don't have to go through any of this crap. Can you, can, can you, you know, think of a guy that has to go through a period, menopause or pregnancy. Come on, give me a break. You know, we're the biggest wimps in the world. Um, so yes, I have. But you had have, a cold though. You had a cold. Oh yeah. I get a cold and I, I, I won't leave the house for six months. Uh, she make know, you cookies when you have a cold. Oh uh, yeah. She, she, uh, she won't she's awesome. baby. She, she's the, she's the perfect woman. She won't baby me, but it, but she knows how to take care of me. She knows she knows when I need a cookie and she knows when I need a kick in the ass. And she knows when to yeah. apply them both. That's she's good perfect. At both. Very good. Uh, but yes, it. we 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 will waver for that depending on the circumstance that got them there. Yeah. So uh, okay. I'd always need more information on the background on that. But yes, and that's super helpful. And and I was going to ask you what makes the OCB different than other natural and non-drug tested federations. And it sounds like it's your interpretation of what natural is what makes the OCB different and that you follow the WADA guidelines. There is the option to do exceptions. You said it's called waivers. So they can submit. How far out from a show do you need to do a waiver? Oh, I have actually had people about to take a polygraph and the examiners will go over what's on there. And I'm getting phone calls, uh, you know, on a Friday night at, you know, sit down with my wife, you know, on a, on a rare Friday night off getting ready to, you know, watch Dateline the phone rings. And it's like, all right, get me, you know, get me your documentation and, you know, send it to my phone and do the, and, and I have done them on the spot, uh, depending on what the, the substance is. Sometimes I can't, um, if I have two weeks, then it gives me enough time to get, uh, to go through the interpretation, go through the guidelines. And, I am not a medical expert. So when I have questions, I have a friend who's a pharmacist. I have a couple of friends who are physicians, general practitioners. Uh, you know, GP is somebody that 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 has at least the base knowledge of a lot of different things. And if I need to find a specialist on something, I will take the time to ask a specialist. But most people are really good about getting me documentation for their waivers. Um, and I try to do it without any HIPAA. I, I don't want people to have to tell me you know, deep, dark medical secrets. Uh, I, I don't need that. I only want enough information that can be documented and substantiated for me to make a reasonable decision. Uh, I have been burned on it before. Uh, and one occasion I know of, you know, it, you know, fake doctor, fake circumstance and whatever, and found out about it after the fact, uh, because I, I don't want, nope, no nope, true story, but it's because I don't want to, um, I don't feel that my role is to, you know, uh, to do a medical deep dive for the one or two people every two or three years. They're going to lie to me about this. You know what? I, I would rather, you know, not badger the innocent and people are trying to do it the right way uh, and making them jump through hoops and making a miserable experience for them. Uh, and, and what get would they try with this, this person that this person that burned you that created this fake doctor scenario? What was the what was the substance they were trying to skirt around? Was it that? Uh, testosterone? Testosterone. So it's testosterone replacement therapy. Yep. Type uh, full of thing? testosterone. Full plus testosterone replacement therapy for uh, uh, glandular glandular removal due to cancer. And then when a urine test comes back, 
And there are nine different anabolic substances that are not used medicinally by any doctor. It calls into question the situation, which leads to more questions, which leads to no documentation, which leads to, you know, yeah, sorry. So this person literally, this person literally pretended to have an, a cancer. So they never had cancer. Yes. Never mm -hmm. lost a gland. To my knowledge, no. And it could never be documented. It could never be proven. Yeah. And wow. when the questions arose, it was actually somebody who competed in one of my shows too, <laughs> a show I promote. It was somebody I knew. And uh, when the urine came back and, you know, they, they, they were positive for it, it was kind of like, you know, surprising to me, which led me to ask the questions, which led me to wait, wait a minute, you know, now I'm looking at this substance. And from my knowledge, this is not something that's given as a replacement. It's definitely not given in a replacement to get you this, you know, this ratio. I can't remember what it was, a 30 to one ratio or something ridiculous of testosterone to estrogen. And there were multiple compounds in there. So I'm like, you know, a, a doctor is going to give you a patch or a pellet or something, mm. you know, on a basis so that it's a more even amount. You know, it, it just, a lot didn't make sense. Uh, asked for further documentation, got nothing. Um, and ultimately. Did you ask would... why? Just curious. Did you ask why? Uh, no, no, didn't ask no. why. And did this no. person look that great that they needed eight different or whatever, multiple different compounds. Did they look that great? No, that's the funny thing about it. They they did not look. They did not look Funny. like, yeah, uh, did not look that. All these massive. compounds didn't win. Mm. Nope. Yeah, that's something. And another thing that's unique about OCB versus other natural federations is how you urine test. If you could kind of, you know, explain a little bit about that process because you actually don't even announce the winners right? Until the urine tests that's, come back. If you could share that we, too, that's important. That's a new process. Um, as a newer ownership group, um, we are in a continuous cycle of process improvement. You know, um, when, when we, we teamed up together, you know, a little over a year ago um, and, you know, started at the helm, uh, we started to look at, you know, policies and stuff that we had that we would continue to review and, and, and monitor and see, is this in the best interest of, of whatever? Uh, so now, now what we're doing is we're not posting results until after the tests come back. And here's why. Um, as an organization, we just don't want to announce um, because this is the era of social media and social media bullying. And just, just, I mean, I've just seen some things that are just, just heartbreaking that don't involve bodybuilding. And we've had situations in the organization in the past where, you know, uh, you post the results and then a name comes off and we don't make an announcement. We don't tell anybody, um, but people figure it out. Um, they weren't at the show. They don't know who was there. They just looked and, oh, yep, that must be... And it causes undue embarrassment for people. And that's not our goal. Our goal is to maintain a as clean a uh, an environment as we possibly can. We've also changed some things. So now it's not just a cut and dry, you know, you fail your analysis test, seven-year ban, you're done. No, no. Uh, we are now looking at the WADA guidelines. Like, what does WADA say? 
as far as their organizational body for how long should a suspension for a substance be? Uh, they don't really, you know, uh, they, they don't do what this, you know, doesn't matter what it is, everything seven years, you know, uh, off with your head. They do as uh, do everything as a, if it's this substance, it's three years. If it's this, it's two years. So we kind of go by that as a base guideline. But then we also implemented a, a full and transparent process where the individual who tests positive will have a hearing. So they have seven days in writing to turn around and say, I want to present a case. And then myself and one other member of the ownership group, the board, will sit down and have a Zoom meeting. We'll go over documentation and we will assess it. So we want to be fair. We want to be equitable. Um, there are there are tainted supplements out there. I mean, there are. I mean, I'm not throwing supplement companies under the bus and I'm not going to, you know, point well, to anyone. Well, in look what particular. happened with Blackstone, Blackstone Labs. Blackstone Labs was selling stuff over the counter and they were they were filling it with stuff's antibiotics. They were filling it with all kinds of stuff. People didn't know that. I exactly. mean, obviously the, they went to jail, but that, that and that is so rare, I would think, with all of the um, third-party testing and stuff that goes on. It really depends on the supplement company that's that they're affiliated with. I mean, there was the the even the people that were supposed to be testing were in cahoots on it. So yeah, I mean that that just sucked. Yeah. So I can I I think that hearing idea of something so tragic like that. I mean, obviously that's an extreme case, but you you allow seven days. How long has that process been in place? Uh, we started that a couple months ago. Okay, so that's new. You've actually yeah, we're fairly had new. a lot of stuff. If you want to. Yeah, there's a few things that are from um, also masters competitors. They masters pros can compete in an amateur open stage and become a pro. That's new. Um, you also reduce. This isn't super new, but something that is relatively new is you reduce the age of a masters competitor down to 35. So you've other. There's been a lot of changes. Females only. Mm. Yep, that's females okay. only. Just for females. Yep, uh, males okay. is still 40. Okay. Uh, females is 35. The funny thing is, is uh, we did, Matt and I back probably 15 years ago, uh, and more Matt than I, because uh, for a long time, Matt would use me as a sounding board, but then he'd go out and do research. And you want to talk about somebody who, I mean, he'd come back with reams of stuff. I know where we would find stuff. I mean, he would just disappear into his laboratory and come up with, you know, you know, look at this. And he would send me an email with like 50 attachments. And it's like, oh, geez, there's a little light reading for the weekend. You know, okay. Uh, you know, sorry, honey, I'll get back to you in about nine hours. And I would sift through what he would find. But the funny thing is, is that he was able to find documentation and medical this and, and just all kinds of stuff that actually showed that the aging process starts around 35 for women, where they start having the decrease in hormones, the increase uh, increases where they don't want the increases, where it actually age actually starts to affect them between 35 and 38. And for men, it's around 40 to 43. So then he he said, do you think we should make masters women 38, men 43? And I'm like, it's just going to confuse the heck out of everybody. So we started with 35 and 40. And we were at 35 and 40 for a number of years. Uh, and then just for continuity, it went to 40 across the board. And then about, you know, a, uh, a little over a year ago, we were looking at what changes to implement that came up again. And we said, yeah, let, let, let's go back to 35 and 40. So that that's, that's where that change came from. Uh, but it came from reams of research that he did back in the day. 
Uh, Have you gotten a lot of bash on that? I know there's a lot of women who are in their late 40s, mid 50s competing in shows, and they're competing now against women who are 35, which you said starts around, but women versus a menopausal woman versus who's just kind of starting a change. There is slightly different. Have you gotten a lot of backlash about that? Uh, a little bit, but not not a significant amount. But as as I said earlier, we are in a, a constant state of uh, continuous process improvement. So we listen to our customers. I mean, if, if it was a situation where you know we were getting you know reams of information from women that you know not fair, not fair, not fair, not fair, not fair. But I, I just I just haven't heard it. I've heard it from a couple of women in their fifties. Uh, and mm-hmm. I can understand that, but they're usually looking for an opportunity to compete as pros. Like, you know, can you add a 45 plus or a 50 plus division? And that's usually where I'm getting those conversations, but I haven't received a lot of, uh, emails, traffic, or people stopping me on the street saying, you know, Hey, you know, this has got to change again. Um, interesting. You know, so, yeah. Well, what about like, what do you consider the most difficult division to judge? from bikini, figure, physique, bodybuilding versus classic physique, bodybuilding, men's men's physique. So you've got an abundance of divisions in the organization. And mm-hmm. which one do you think is the most difficult to judge? Uh, I think consistently it's bikini. Um, but now it's going to probably be wellness, even though I am so actively training my judges. I have video seminar series out. I mean, it what I, I, I even uh, have started implementing um, Zoom meetings. So like if you're a promoter and you know who your seven judges are going to be a week out, then we get together, we either have a Zoom meeting or you have to go through the video series that dissect how to judge for OCB, these different federations, and what is wellness. Uh, so um, wellness hasn't provided as many issues as I thought it would because it's still new to the OCB and because every show doesn't have it and some shows that have it only have a couple of competitors, others have like, you know, 14, 18 women doing wellness. Uh, so it's taken a bite out of bikini, but I think as the judges understand what the criteria is supposed to be, it will be easier to judge. And then the pendulum will swing back into bikini. Uh, but yeah, bikini has consistently been the most difficult to judge. Uh, there are a variety of factors for that, but um, uh, I think the easiest to judge is um, in the OCB, it's the, the two posts, the two poses, the more angles you can view a physique. Here's why bodybuilding is so clean. Bodybuilding has 11 poses, and then you have the symmetry round, front, side, back, side. Okay. You are viewing the physique from a lot of different angles that allows you to have a greater ability to differentiate. When you're looking at a physique from front side and back, it makes it a little bit more difficult. And when you're looking at it from front and back, it makes it even more difficult. The other thing on bikini is the nuances of what you look for for bikini. Uh, Bikini is supposed to be toned, not overly muscular. One of the biggest things I'm working with and training my judges now is the unconscious judging bias of definition. Everything needs to be more ripped. And this is because when you look at it, and um, I don't want this to to seem like I am bashing the NPC and the IFBB, I am not. I only bring them up because they are everywhere. 
every magazine, everything you look at, every website you go on, everything is MPCIFPD. So you see this all the time. So if you're following along with what I'm saying, you see nothing but NPCIFBB physiques. And when you look at bikini and then figure and then bodybuilding, the only difference between the three physiques in all reality is the degree of muscle mass they are holding, which creates for judges that go on to the internet and the website, magazines, and look all this stuff, it creates an unconscious judging bias towards definition. Mm-hmm. Bikini is not supposed to be as lean as figure. And figure, um, some figure competitors are, are, are pretty doggone lean. So when you see bikini competitors walking back and forth and doing their little walk and you see striations coming out of their quads and hamstrings, they're too lean for bikini. Um, the, other, the other aspect about uh, bikini that makes it difficult to judge is um, the the overemphasis on glutes. Okay, it's turned into the perception of a butt competition. If it was a butt competition, the Kardashians would win hands down every show, no contest. But you know, let's face it, none of the Kardashians could even enter a competition and place well. But it's an overemphasis on the glutes and trying to train the judges what to look for from the front pose that would be considered the right level of muscularity and the right muscle of def- right amount of definition, and the same from the back pose. So it's, it's a little bit more difficult to judge because you really have to drill down on it more. Anybody can look at a picture of a great bodybuilder and go, yeah, you win. But it's more difficult when you have a bunch of good bikini competitors on a stage and you're really trying to dissect it. And figure is even easier than, than, than that, too, because, I mean, figure, you're looking at, you know, uh, you know, wide lats, capped deltoids, sweeping thighs with good definition and tone through that. I know it when I see it. Now I get uh, eight, 10 girls up for a bikini division and they all turn around and they all got great glutes. Well, that's great. What do I look at next? Well, let me explain what you look at next. And that's why I'm doing the judges' breakdowns with them and you know, trying to get them to find the right degree of muscularity and what to look at beyond the glutes because it's not just a butt show. Uh, so that's what that's makes me so true honest. about the glutes. That is so true about the glutes because I have competitive teach the posing component for. Um, I actually have a lot of OCB competitors that I work with, men and women. And when I taught, and I do clinics, virtual clinics, where I teach the posing, how to execute and get into the poses, but how to look at it from a judge's standpoint, I judge as well. So when, when I explain it to people, it's funny because when somebody comes to me and they say, what, how would I do it like this? And it's like, because my glute looks better like this, you can really see that glute muscle. And when I try to pull it back and I say, well, it's not a glute competition. It's a bodybuilding competition from head to toe, creating the best overall shape should be your goal. Not the only goal is to create the best shape with my glute. So I think it's so important to really drive that home that every division spun off of bodybuilding, whether it's bikini, whether it was physique, doesn't matter. It was all originally bodybuilding. So with the exception of wellness being more of a pear shape, asymmetric frame, everything from bikini to figure to bodybuilding is, is, is structurally looking for a certain type of balance. And I agree with you that there only being poses in bikini really does make it difficult because 
especially when you, again, you just need a foundation of muscle. You could have been athletic your entire life and you could train for a few months and do a bikini competition and you might even do really well, especially Mm -hmm. if you have genetically a very tiny waistline. So what else is there to do if you have muscle, you only have two poses. So my question was, what about like the stage walk itself? I know there's an individual routine that people do and it's actually, um, there's quite a bit of time on stage that they can have because there's multiple points on stage. It's not just a spotlight. It's not just an eye walk. You actually have a full T walk, uh, typically. Again, if it, unless it's a pop-up stage, I understand there's differences with um, the actual venues. But is there is there that that could be incorporated to help maybe with soaring, maybe a little bit more presentation, maybe a little bit more, I don't know, anything in between? Or is it not what you're looking for? You really just want to keep it two poses? Because I agree with you, bodybuilding division is super easy. I find it easier to judge bodybuilding myself because yeah. there's a lot more poses and even figure it's like, okay, somebody comes out on stage. You can pretty much get your top five, pretty, pretty good. And bikini. Yeah. There's a whole lot more to factor. So where do we go from here? Uh, in the OCB for the bikini one of, so you have a front to back pose, but then you also have a, a line that's taped further back from the stage. So if you can picture how the stage looks for a T walk, where you come out to the, to the back of the stage, and then you present there, and then you walk up to the t- to the front, very front of the stage. You present there, and then you go to each wing. What we do in that round is we have them, you know, turn to face the curtain, walk to the curtain, and there'll be a blue line there. Turn around, face front, walk to the blue line to the front, and we have them do that for a reason because we can then assess their body through movement. We can determine do they have abdominal muscularity. We can tell. You know, how much muscle do you have in your upper torso? You can tell that, that, you know, the two degree of muscularity that they have in their thighs and their hamstrings when they're walking backwards. Are they able to just pull all that in and make it look, you know, kind of like, a, you know, you know, like, you know, a Play-Doh fun factory. They can just kind of like pull everything into a glute pose and then it all just goes, Bleh. you know, you can tell. We have them walk, not because we want to see how sultry they can walk on the heels. And I'm telling you the truth that sometimes I just want to turn around. I want to go coaches. Please control your clients. This is not a burlesque show. We want to see them walk, not so they can flip their hair, wink at us and do all this sexy stuff. We want to see them walk so we can see their freaking physiques. So tone that down a little bit, coaches. It's nice to have a little. You don't need a lot. But what we're looking at is how everything moves, transitions, and pops. I actually get more out of having them walk to the curtain, turn around, and walk forward, I get more out of my judging scores on that than I do with front and back poses. Um, So that's how we incorporated that because we do not score the individual stage walks, routines, or any of that. We don't score that. We score the physique all at one time. Now, the reason that we don't score physique in the stage walk is because, as you know, physiques change. They, they, They get better and they get worse. They get better and they get worse. Is it fair to incorporate a score on how they look and perform on a stage walk where that stage walk could have been 20 minutes or five hours later? Uh, No, because you need to be compared in the group at the time. When you're in a comparison, it is a snapshot in time. It's how everybody looks there. It's not how you looked in your pictures before you got to the venue. And it's not how you looked when you were getting your trophies at night. And it's not even how you look when you're on stage doing your stage walk. It is how you look when you were in that lineup and when you were compared to your others. So that's why we added that little bit of a stage walk in back and forth. 
So the audience has heard from Sully himself that <laughs> bikini competitors have two poses. However, when you were walking away from the judges and to the judges on that stage walk component of the pre-judging round, not the individual walk that I was talking about earlier, that particular component, just looking at the jiggle. You did they're looking for some jiggle, like is it fall apart in the lower in the glutes and hamstrings? It's really tight. But you also said something important too that when they turn around, is there abdominal definition? So you're looking for a total standpoint. So walk is critical, but not for what people think the winky wink, you know, right. Boot looking out, look at me. It's really like you got to be careful because you want they're actually assessing they're not and make yourself look presentable but you don't want to over present and potentially create more jiggle with your sassy pants walk or turn around and not really show any sort of abdominal definition which might have actually helped you so I, those are i think critical for competitors to understand a little bit more about what they're being judged on and how not just the two poses but how else they can better their chances of getting a better score so that i think was very very good to to share with with the audience and i do want to know also um so you did talk about how like that your judges like how they are learning right you talked about how your calls that you actually have you know what are the how are you doing quality how are you able to pick your judges do they have to have certain criteria do they background in order to be a judge for the ocb uh a competitive background you don't need to be a pro competitor um but to have a competitive background because uh, you need to understand what happens at the event, what the body goes through. Um, you have to understand, like, you know, at least the criteria that you come from. So where you don't need to be a pro, um, you at least need to be, you know, a competitor and have a competitive background. Uh, the other thing that we look for is um, I, the whole judging process, uh, and it's a process, um, starts with a, a variety of exercises, everything from um, you know, photo assessments, can, can you apply criteria? Can you articulate feedback through video series where, you know, you get to see my charming face, you know, guide you through a bunch of different things. Uh, key emphasis is, uh, the key emphasis, like what is the fallback of everything, which is symmetry. Uh, and this is what I, this is, here's where I go with this. When it comes to judging, what is what, what makes a bodybuilder different from men's physique, different, the symmetry, the balance of the, 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 the parts, what is pleasing to the eye, the overall look, that is different for each category. Now, there's different levels of muscularity and density for all those, but what's the number one thing that's different from everything? It is the symmetry. So I also have tools and videos on how to develop an eye for symmetry. Um, I have rubrics that I give people um, that they can go by of, you know, like the hierarchy of for what category um, after symmetry, you know, I get, I get three physiques on stage that meet the ideal for symmetry. Then what's the next bump, you know, well then, you know, for this you know particular class, it would be definition and then mass. Okay. You know, this is the most defined guy with, so I break all that down. Um, I have a video series for how to be a head judge. Um, that's just because of you know, decades of head judging and being around head judges. There's nothing worse than the head judge being quarter turned to the right. Quarter turned to the right. There's got to be more to it. And, you know, absolutely positively breaking the mold of 
First is in the middle, seconds to the left, thirds to the right, fourths to the left. If, if you go through my head judges training program, you will never do that again. You will never put who you think are the top two people in the center of a stage. They'll always be over in the far right and the far left. Why? Because usually when you set your judging panel up for whatever reason, your weaker or newer judges end up in the wings and they get the worst freaking viewpoint of the entire show. And then you have a head judge turn around and put the best people in the middle. All the people on the edge see is in a 45 degree angle. And then people go, why was the scoring messed up? Because you didn't take care of the people on the ends. And also you telegraphed what you were doing. You know, I think you should win. Nobody should know who I think should win the show. They should be able to differentiate the scores. And then that's the other thing we do in the ACB, uh, OCB. Um, the promoters send me the tabulation sheets after. And then I score the judges. And if you get below a certain vector on your scores, then you get remedial training. And then if you repeatedly get below a certain vector, then you get removed. The other thing we do with our judges is people all the time, you hear it all the time, you know, you know, Sally's a coach and his client won. So therefore it had to be rigged. You're right. It had nothing to do with the fact that you might not have been ready for prime time or you didn't have the best physique. It was because there was the judge's client. So our judges will recluse themselves. Now, occasionally situations happen where you might have a head judge who's not scoring. We had this situation happen and, you know, you know, somebody won that they were associated with. They weren't scoring. They didn't even put them in the middle. They were just, so now we now have to make sure we have two head judges capable of doing it. Um, but uh, so let's say you have, uh, you need five judges on a panel. I tell promoters to bring in seven and you have floating judges. So then what will happen before you, let's say, you know, Michelle welcomes my client and she's coming up in, you know, the, the figure eight class and I'm her trainer. The head judge will turn around and say, uh, you know, uh, you know, next class up is going to be the, uh, you know, uh, women's figure class A. Uh, judge four, Sean Sully Sullivan has a competitor in that class. He will be reclused. I stand up. I leave. He'll be replaced by Joe Blow. And Joe Blow comes and sits down, puts his name on the score sheet. So I now know on that score sheet, Joe Blow scored that. So um, their error is not mine. And then the other thing I always look at, uh, and I started so it's doing Joe Blow's fault. It's Joe Blow's <laughs> fault. So if you win, it's Joe's fault. But the other thing I look at is on judging anomalies. If I see an anomalous score, the first thing I do is I go on Facebook. I find that judge on Facebook and I see who their clients are. It's a simple tool. I have not yet found a situation where, uh, at least this year, I've not found a single situation where a judge has padded things. You know what I usually see on the rare the instances opposite. where a judge has a client in the in the show? You'll have four judges that'll have that client first, and he would have had him second or third. I have seen that. that I see the reverse. It's like I'm yeah, intentionally not helping, but but we try to alleviate <laughs> that by by rotating, you know, by by having rotating judging panels. So those are all the it's things. It's true. That People are so sensitive to politics. They're so sensitive to favoritism, and it's and there is no um, yeah. And I think that the airing on the side option is a really great idea, and I like that you actually judge the judges. That, that's improve for quality control and um, also understanding that there is there is a whole process that you take these judges through in order to be even qualified and they don't have to be a pro but you have to at least understand bodybuilding so at least have competed yes. so that's very that's very unique to OCB and the federation itself there's a lot of what you've shared to very unique to the nation and I can say having gone to a show I have a, again a lot of posing clients that I would come and support and I met you at the show the Yorton Cup and honestly, yeah. 
I was so impressed by the camaraderie, what not just amongst the competitors, but amongst the coaches, the vibe there was very friendly. And you can, in what you talked about, how certain shows, and I've experienced that myself, where backstage, it's like everybody's got, you know, snot face. And it's like, why? We're all here doing this hobby, this thing. It's a hobby. And it is individual, but why can't it be fun too? Because I know what it took to get here, which means that you just know what I did to get here. And that's a camaraderie in itself. So, you know, that idea of the friendship and, and every and the environment that you do provide, I, I do want to make that as a standout to the audience that I can say that it's a warm, inviting environment. And you are on, honestly trying to constantly better the and evolve the federation and there's one last uh, piece to that evolution that you just announced recently which was that there was a rule that professionals in the OCB could not compete in non-drug tested federations without relinquishing their pro card and this was a big deal for a lot of competitors in fact I saw somebody that got a a one at the your and it was this big thing where now I'm going to go compete over here and I understand what I'm doing, but this is my journey. I want to try this other federation. Da, 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 da. So can you share what happened for you to change that? Well, why was it implemented in the first place and what allowed you to maybe revisit the conversation and maybe change directions with that rule and no longer um, not allow professional OCB competitors from uh, competing in non-direct tested federations for uh, for the OCB, it was never that they couldn't compete in uh, in any other federation. It just had to be federations that had like or similar testing protocols and had just, uh, very similar um, drug testing guidelines, uh, same banned substance list, etc. Just just for repeatability of our pros. But the thing that changed is we just started. We were listening to our customers, and it, you know. Uh, people just wanted more opportunities to compete. And we were just like, yeah, fine. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if that's what you guys want, we didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. Cause when you looked at uh, other federations that also urine test and polygraph tests, or, or our guideline was test a hundred percent of the competitors. It was to prevent our pros from going into a situation where a federation would say they drug test, but they really don't you know, half the people are on something, the other half aren't. Uh, we just wanted to, you know, make sure that they stayed on the same level playing field. Uh, but, and I did the math when uh, when when we in, inherited that, uh, that situation, I sat down, I did the math and I went, okay, well, between NGA, WNBF, IPE, and I can't remember the other federations, it came out to like, like 75 pro shows per year that competitors had the opportunity to compete in. And I'm like, well, that's, that if you're a pro in all those organizations, you have 75 shows to do. Eh, that's enough shows, you know, have at it. But people still wanted more opportunity. And then when I was talking to the competitors and, you know, they were talking to me about it, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, there's, there's like 35 pro NGA shows. There's like 15 pro WNBF shows. There's like 12 pro IP shows. There's like 18 pro OCB shows. And then, it was kind of like that aha moment. They were like, yeah, but there's only one OCB pro show I don't have to fly to. And I went, oh, and they were like, but there's an ANBF show down the street. And then there's, you know, an NPC show. There's five of them in my city. And then I'm like, oh, all right. And so we talked about it. We were like, well, Jesus, you know, we, we, we want our pros to have opportunities. We want them to be in, you know, a fair and even playing field. 
But if that's our stance and it's not what they want, they want to have the opportunity to choose whether they where they compete because geographically there's more opportunity in their backyard, then by all means, let's let, just let them do it. It, may, it makes sense. We were trying to do it you know, for their protection, but it comes down to sometimes as an organization, you do things with the best intent, but then you come across as, you know, big brother, you know, always watching and, you know, thou shalt. And it becomes like, you know, us and, and it just, it, after a while, it just felt like, you know, are we trying to be a little too pious with this? People don't want it. So dump it, let them go where they want to go and, and user mileage may vary. And the funny thing is, is that we heard from from dozens and dozens and dozens of competitors who said, thank you for lifting the restriction. And I would ask them, well, I've never seen you do another federation besides, oh, I'm not going to. I'm just glad you were. It meant that much to you when you're never going to do another federation besides OCB. But it meant that much. Yeah, it just meant that you were giving me my freedom back. I mean, when I was the absolute right thing to do then. Uh, but it, it is the two things that we always try wow. to do in the OCB, constant process improvement and listening to the voice of the customer. And those are the two things that we try to do. Um, what are the part, goals, the future goals of the Federation? Um, we only have one goal for the Federation to consistently put out the best possible product. And by consistently, I mean working with and mentoring and building a partnership a vital partnership with every promoter and the organization, and then extending it beyond that promoter. I am now going to start doing coaches Zoom meetings throughout the year, um, starting in January, where something will be put up. If you're an OCB coach, we're going to have a Zoom meeting. I'm going to break down criteria. I'm going to break down posing. I'm going to break down the why, because it's important for the coaches to have an understanding. They are part of this process with us. I already said, listening into the voice of the customer, we need to listen to our customer's voice and hinge upon what they want. Not what one or two people want, um, but we have to do it when we have the ability to do it, because there are some organizational things that we do we will not compromise on. Like one of the things I hear about all the time is why can't we have 50 plus master's competitions like they do in other federations? We can't because the OCB will not lower a prize money based on age or sex. If you are a 50-year-old female, you are going to get the same payout as if a, you are a 25-year-old male. We will change nothing and alter nothing. But every dollar that goes out in our prize money comes from our membership funds and from uh, people who enter the federations. And when you're having $63,000 payouts at the Yorton Cup and you know we bumped up our uh, minimum prize payouts uh, by $500 at all uh, amateur shows, when you start adding all those payouts up on 18 or 20 pro shows, and you're looking at the hundreds of thousands of dollars that is, you can only add so much. Um, so until we get a bigger membership base, we can't add that 50 plus master show because I refuse to allow an organization to have a you know 50 plus men's or a 30, 45 plus women's pro event where the prize money is going to be scaled down to $250. It's, it's like... No, we'll let you compete in other events, other organizations, and still be an OCB pro. So we'll allow you opportunity, but we won't compromise on that. So we try to find that balance between our things that we we won't compromise on and those things that we will when it comes to listening to the voice of the customer. 
But really, well, there build- sounds like there's there's an opening there. So you just need more over fifty competitors. If we have more over fifty competitors, uh, and you know, uh, and we have a, a larger pro uh, pro organization, pro body, then yeah, I mean, it's something that we would discuss. I mean, nothing is ever off the table when we do our. Uh, I, I mean. <laughs> I would like to say that uh, as an ownership group, we we meet monthly, but no, it's more like continuous conversation. <laughs> I mean, we're always talking, but we have our we do have our our major uh, our major meetings by by our bylaws and our guidelines and stuff like that. We adhere to it, you know, uh, Rogers rules and and all that. Uh, so uh, you know, we we want to be a legitimate sports federation, not a bodybuilding organization. So we try to do everything with a legitimate background and a legit, uh, legitimacy to it. But um, but yeah, so we're trying to build these partnerships. So that's the that that that's our goal is to like build that synergy because it is a triad. It you know every show there is a competition triad. Your promoter, your judges, and your competitors are a triad. And who represents the competitors? Now it's the coaches because most competitors have a coach. So they all need a voice and they all need an understanding and they all need to have a vested interest in the organization, how their clients are treated, how you're treated as a competitor, how how we're mentoring and building up and working as an entire team with each and every promoter to ensure they are successful. And working, you know, working that all together to put out the best possible event that we can and being there when we see things that are like, yeah, you know what, I, all of us, you know, the, the, the four of us travel to a lot of shows and we see things and we're constantly coming back and not to critique or nitpick, but to do, you know, hey, have you thought about doing this in your event? No, I haven't. That's a really great idea. Well, why don't you incorporate that in this? And Or we'll go and we'll see stuff that we're like. Holy cow, that's a great idea. And we give them credit and we pass it on. So that's what we work on. That that is our organizational goal is just to continue to, you know, to develop and grow uh, and to just be a family where everybody has a voice. I mean, you know, we guide the ship, but this is y'all's party. Well, there you go, guys, listeners, wondering in a nutshell what it's like to compete in the OCB and why did in the OCB. I'm hearing nothing but there's always room for improvement. And I think as an athlete, there's always room for improvement. And it sounds like that is very much the tune of the OCB. And you're constantly listening and watching. And there's so much to offer in that. So you greatly summarized and provided a tremendous amount of valuable information to my audience today. I thank you very much. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. And I and for the listeners, um, Soli has his own podcast called The Zen of Bodybuilding. And this podcast is where you can listen to for immediate information. I know that you talk about any sort of changes in the OCB. It's all about the OCB. So if you want to maybe give a little bit of where the audience can find you, where they can find The Zen of Bodybuilding. And... Sure. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, yeah, the Zen of Bodybuilding is on Spotify and iTunes. Uh, just uh, type in Zen of Bodybuilding. Uh, each episode, I do about 10 minutes on OCB events or something to do with the Federation. And then I break it down into what I consider the Zen of Bodybuilding. Uh, at the beginning of our interview, we were talking about you know uh, my thoughts on, on what bodybuilding did for me and the paying it forward. Uh, I did mention, you know, how I always use, uh, I, I looked at bodybuilding as another way to strengthen one of my pillars, you know, spiritual, emotional, and uh, social pillars. 
And we talk about that. Uh, so I talk a lot about the bodybuilding off the stage, because if you take all the moments that I spent on stage out of a hundred and some odd shows, it would amount to a week of my life, but I've been a bodybuilder for 50 years. Uh, well, you know, 40 some odd years, uh, and I'll be a bodybuilder for the rest of my life. Uh, so bodybuilding is what happens in your heart. It's what happens in your head. It happens uh, when you're with that social group with like-minded peers that are also into self-improvement. And that's what we talk about in the Zen of bodybuilding. So it's not just biceps and triceps. And then I also have a bunch of interviews. You know, I interview people uh, involved in the sport. A lot of times we talk about things besides, you know, biceps, triceps, and uh, what to eat for lunch. There's there's more than that. There's, there's a variety of wonderful podcasts and, and wonderful sources of that information. So I guess we're chicken soup for the soul. And uh, that's kind of what we try to go after. That's kind of why we're a little bit niche. Uh, I do have another podcast for any military listeners out there. It's called Chevrons. Um, and also uh, um, iTunes and Spotify. It's when I put my chief master sergeant hat on. And we interview various people throughout the military organizations. And uh, it uh, it got... Uh, uh, the um, best, uh, best, po- uh, best, best broadcast from the Armed Forces Network. So it was considered the best podcast in the Armed Forces last year. Uh, that is not from me. I am the talking head. That's Tim Sandlin, the producer, the heart and soul behind that. I just came to him with an idea one day and he was just like, yep, great idea. You're going to be the host. And I was like, oh, crap. Uh, be careful what you wish for. Um, but in the military, I have a lot of people who listen to that too that are not in the military and they get a lot of value out of it because we talk about different things, you know, uh, leadership, teamwork, esprit de corps, uh, just very important uh, things uh, to make you a better, well-rounded person, a better, well-rounded leader, a better human being. Uh, that's what we talk about in Chevrons. So those are the two podcasts. That's fantastic. And thank yeah. you, Michelle. And do you also time. have any sort of, you're welcome. Do you have social media that you preferred that people follow you on or no? Just the podcast. Uh, uh, you can follow me on the podcast. I have an uh, Instagram page. Uh, I I do a lot of my, you know, uh, pop on there. And and if you want to, you know, hit me up for anything, uh, I am sulcop 96 on Instagram. So S-U-L-C-O-P-9-6 on Instagram. Uh, also Facebook, Sean Sully Sullivan. Just look for my, my, you know, my beautiful profile. If you see a guy wearing a uniform with big ears, it's probably me. Uh, and so uh, hit me up there. And of course, anywhere I am in bodybuilding. I, uh, I hope it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> It's What's been that? great. I was going to say, and anywhere I am in bodybuilding, stop by and talk to me personally. I cherish face-to-face communications the most. I believe you. Yeah. You always, you always have time to talk to people, no matter how busy you are. And well, and you had time to talk to my audience today. So I thank you so much. And I will be, um, again, promoting this and getting the information out there for the series to, so that people can learn all about the OCB Federation and what makes it different. And I couldn't think of a better person to come on the show to explain that. Thank you once again, Sully. I appreciate your time and I look forward to keeping in touch. Well, thank you, Michelle, and have a great night. Thank you. You too. You too. Bye now. Bye. Ever wonder if you are posing correctly for your division? Learn to Pose is dedicated to taking out the guesswork on how to pose for all categories in bodybuilding. Learn five ways you can improve your posing skills in five minutes guaranteed at www.learntopose.com. 
are free posing tutorials available for the bikini, figure, and men's physique categories, and more on the way for other divisions in bodybuilding. It's free, so go access your free posing tutorial for bikini, figure, or men's physique at learntopose.com.